Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to this panel at the Texas Tribune Festival. Uh, it's called, Is the Death Penalty Working? And uh, hopefully the answer will be more than just a yes or no, and then we go to lunch. Um, but uh, just to, to tell you all who we have here today, um, this is Joe Deschotel. He represents Beaumont. He's a Democrat. He's represented House District 22 since 1999. He serves as chairman of the House Land and Resource Management Committee and also sits on the Public Education Committee and the Subcommittee on Educator Quality. Previously, he served on the Beaumont City Council and is vice president for administration and legal counsel at Lamar University. Uh, Jordan Steiker over here, uh, he teaches constitutional law, criminal law, and death penalty law at UT Austin, uh, where he's also co-director of the Capital Punishment Center. He was previously a law clerk to Justice Thurgood Marshall, who you may have heard of, at the US Supreme Court, and he was a visiting professor at Harvard Law School. Uh, Elsa Alcala was appointed to the Court of Criminal Appeals in 2011. Previously, she served nine years as justice on the state's first Court of Appeals. Before becoming a judge, she spent nine years as an assistant district attorney under Harris County DA Johnny Holmes. Uh, Catherine Case uh, joined the Texas Defender Service in 2002 after working in private practice in San Antonio and Albany, New York. She has represented capital clients at trial in Texas and New York State courts and has served as learned counsel in federal court. Case is also a faculty member of the National Criminal Defense College in Georgia. And finally, Jervis Parsons, to my left, uh, was elected the Brazos County District Attorney in 2012. He, was, he is on the advisory board of the Texas A&M Engineering Extension Service, Central Texas Police Academy. That's a mouthful. Mm -hmm. Parsons began his career at the Brazos County District Attorney's Office in 2002, and we spoke before this, and he has prosecuted several death penalty cases. Um, and my name is Maurice Shema. I'm a staff writer for the Marshall Project. To give that plug, we are a nonprofit, nonpartisan criminal justice focused outlet based in New York. Um, so uh, we are here to talk about whether the death penalty is working. And one, you know, we always tend to talk about problems that exist and problems that have existed in the past. And I often then find myself wondering, what would a system that worked for various you know, members of the legal community look like? Uh, what kinds of things really need to be fixed uh, in order for Texans or for defense attorneys or prosecutors to say this system is working? Uh, so if anyone wants to jump in on that, and, and I also should say, feel free to interrupt each other, feel free to not lob it back to me. Uh, I'd like to make this sort of a free-flowing conversation, so. Well, for a start, I don't think we'd convict the innocent, and we wouldn't execute them. We seem not to have accomplished either of those tasks. Um, I'll say I think it's working better than it used to, and maybe that's not saying a whole lot, but uh, we have people who have been on death row for 20 or 30 years, and those cases come up, or those people come up for execution. And what we're seeing, or what I'm seeing in those cases that were litigated 20 and 30 years ago are cases where trial counsel did next to nothing uh, in the guilt phase and then truly did nothing or next to nothing in the punishment phase. Then that person got convicted and sentenced to death and he got a, a state's appeal lawyer who did nothing or next to nothing. Then he got state habeas counsel who did nothing or next to nothing. Then finally, the case goes into the federal courts and sometimes he had the same bad lawyers before, but sometimes got new counsel. 
fast forward 20 years and somebody gets involved that knows what they're doing. Maybe it's the Texas Defender Service, maybe it's some civil law firm in New York, but somebody gets involved 20, 30 years later that has a clue about how to handle a case and then they do investigation and research and bring the case back into state court and you would think at that point we would deal with the merits of the case. But instead what happens is that on a writ is what it's called, we end up saying that it's all procedurally defaulted because the defendant should have brought it sooner. Never mind the fact that the defendant had shoddy lawyers at every step of the litigation and that's what the whole problem is, is that the shoddy lawyers didn't do anything. And so we have um, a number of people like that on death row in that situation and I think Dwayne Buck, uh, maybe you'll talk about that later, I think in some ways he falls into that category on the issue that's in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. So today I think there is more scrutiny on trial and appellate lawyers. I think there's going to be disagreement about that given a recent report that was just published by the Texas Defender Service. But, but I think few would argue that it's better. Uh, but, but certainly not where it, it should be if the system is going to be kept. It still has leaps and bounds to go to, to get to where I would feel comfortable with the way the Texas is, the, the way that Texas is handling death penalty cases. I can only speak for my area in Brazos County, so I'm going to take kind of a counter view, is that I've been doing these since 2003, actually trying these cases against defense attorneys from Harris County, from the Regional Public Defender's Office, and I haven't seen really good representation in our area. Um, and I, I think that we are all in agreement that no one innocent should be convicted which is a question of the criminal justice system, as well as the death penalty. So myself or any other prosecutor that I would, um, that I would know. Um, but uh, most of the cases that I have seen, and I can speak of the cases in my jurisdiction when I was an assistant and then now that I'm the elected, uh, they've had great representation on their side. They are cases that are, for lack of a better word, horrific. Um, and many times overwhelming facts, and the defense attorneys that I have seen have done a really good job with what they have had, um, as well as their appellate counsel. So I can only speak from personal experience in my, in my area, but um, I haven't seen some of those, uh, uh, how to say, shoddy defense work. I would say that the death penalty is not working, but it's not working in a different way than it was not working 20 or 30 years ago. Um, for all the reasons the judge said, 20 or 30 years ago, there was no reason to be confident that people were getting adequate representation at any level. Um, and, and some of those cases are still in the pipeline. And um, I think in many of those cases, it would be a tremendous injustice to move toward execution. Um, but the death penalty is not working today because it's just not serving any purpose. I mean, I think the dirty secret about the Texas death penalty is that we now have so few death sentences that it's such a marginal part of the Texas criminal justice system. Last year we had, I think, two or three, depending two. on how you count, two new death sentences in the entire state of Texas. Um, and at the, the height of the 90s, what would have been? At the height of the 90s, we were in the 40s. 38, yeah, 40s. Um, and so now, and this year, we're again likely to have fewer than five death sentences statewide. And when you think of the hundreds of homicides in Texas, 
the death penalty is just an enormously marginal part. It's just not a significant part of how Texas punishes even homicide. And when you think of, of the amount of resources and energy that's, that have to be devoted when you have a capital system to maintaining a death row, it's the only mandatory part of the docket of the Court of Criminal Appeals. It's, it's just occupying an enormous amount of space for almost no return. No one can plausibly think that the death penalty in Texas deters when you sentence two or three people a year to death. No one can plausibly think that you're getting an enormous retributive value from the death penalty when 98% or more of all murders are punished with life imprisonment. And now that we have life without possibility of parole, the death penalty sort of lost its value in terms of incapacitation. People are incapacitated because they're never going to leave prison. So the death penalty is just not serving any plausible, conceivable criminological purpose. Well, I was going to just say, Representative Deschatel, it would be in the legislature that um, the wishes of the population and, 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 uh, and the purpose that this serves would be, in theory, discussed. And, and you know, more than 50% of Texans still do support the death penalty. So what is the role of the legislature, given that the people that vote you in often want this punishment to stick around? Well, you know, I don't, I don't know how much they really want it to stick around because we're really not doing a lot of it. It's just not understanding the, the concept. And so you ask the person, are you in favor of the death penalty? Well, they may immediately think, well, somebody killed my mother. Or, or, yes, I am. But, I mean, there's a bigger picture than that. And, and it's costing the taxpayers and it's costing the state a lot of time and money for the requirements that loops you have to go through in the capital system. Possibly what we could do is legislation that helps the judge in those areas give them wider latitude of what they can look at in those situations. We should have to change the, you know, the, the statutes to, to allow that. But I mean, I just don't think that the death penalty serves a, person, a, a purpose of deterring anyone. I would, actually, I would actually think that it may do just the opposite in some cases, because I don't think many people who are committing a crime are gonna say, wow, if I get caught, I'm gonna get the death penalty. But if somebody kidnaps someone and, and, and decide, uh, uh, rapes or decides to, well, you know, if she ever identifies me, I can get, the, I can get the death penalty. You know, so I'm, she's killed. She's, you know, because so that she cannot. So instead of incentivizing a person not to commit a capital crime, in order to get rid of a witness, you, if it was a mandatory death sentence, you probably are increasing uh, uh, that type of activity. So. I mean, I don't see a plausible argument of the death penalty deterring a criminal from committing a particular act. I want to respectfully disagree with some of my uh, esteemed colleagues there. And I think that the deterrence argument to me is a little bit of a red herring. The death penalty, in my opinion, is a reasoned moral response to crime. And when you speak to juries, they aren't thinking about the deterrence factor, what it may do to other people. They are thinking at the actual people, the actual victim, the actual children and women that are murdered senselessly. The fact that there are less death penalty cases today speaks that those are a narrow slice of the pie for the what we would consider to be, many times, the worst of the worst. So the fact that somebody else may not be listening uh, or may not be looking on TV when there's a death penalty, in my opinion, has no bearing on the punishment for the person that is on trial for doing an unspeakable act. 
But the worst of the worst where? Because there's a joke in Harris County, where I'm from, that says if you want to commit capital murder in Harris County, be sure to drag the body in Waller County, because they've never sought the death penalty for anything. And I think that the reason for that is, and frankly, is that what ends up happening, the argument before was there's, uh, there's a lack of money in the smaller counties. And so the prosecutor, who knows that this is a death penalty case, can't do it because he's afraid it's going to break the budget. And what we've seen is that some of the defense attorneys that we've had have that's an intentional strategy that to try to say, we're going to run up the cost so that you will have to think about it. This person may deserve the death penalty, but we can't do it because it's going to hurt the budget in other cases. And that, to me, what I have seen from the people that we have dealt with, specifically in my county, um, is a disingenuous argument when you say it costs too much money and many times it's the defense that is spending 10 times the amount. The last case I tried, the state spent $80,000. The defense spent $856,000. I, I want to talk about that case, and though. That was the part to me that was a little bit, it, when you say it costs too much money, and then the majority of the money is being spent by the defense, and then say we can't do it because it costs too much money, it's kind of a double-bound argument for the prosecutor. I, I want to just, though, respond to that, because I have read the articles about it, and I'm aware of a couple of things about that case. A. The defendant was willing to take a life sentence mm -hmm. without parole. So the, the spending of the money for the defense that needed to be proffered was within your control. Second, $80,000 does not reflect what the state spent because we don't, we don't break out and we can't get through Open Records Act requests in Texas. The, what it costs for the judge to spend time on the case, what it costs for extra security detail at the jail to hold this person pretrial, what it costs for the police and law enforcement overtime, not only to work on the case, but to come into court and testify at pretrial hearings. We don't have the cost, the extra cost, of what it costs the judiciary um, further up the line at the Court of Criminal Appeals, where there's a whole group of clerks known as the death clerks who review death penalty cases to assist the judges. We don't know what it costs um, in terms of time in the federal judiciary to review those sentences further. And, um, you know, it goes right up the line. So we have a lot of costs that are associated in death penalty cases. And to say that it's only the defense that's running up the bill is, is actually not true. And the decision to go forward with the death penalty case is your decision. So you're setting those costs in motion. And that actually furthers my point, and I would say this will be 20 seconds. Oh, it actually furthers my point that it's not about just the deterrence and the person just goes away, because in that particular case, the defendant was threatening people both on the inside of the prison and the outside of the prison, sending people to try to intimidate witnesses. And so just throwing somebody away and locking the key, A, to me, is not an immoral, a, a moral place to be for people who are inside the jail, who may be there for nonviolent crimes, or for people who are just witnesses in the criminal justice system who are now scared um, to, uh, to testify because of what somebody may do or who they may send out from the prison system. So that's part of the calculation when dealing with that narrow slice of people where you don't just throw away and lock the key and they're gone forever. These people still can sometimes reach out and touch people. And that's a, that's a, a factor many times in prosecutors' minds when they decide to go forward. It is not every single person. In fact, it's a very little slice of the pie. But there are some people who are not just deterred by just being in prison. And that's the, that's the side of it that many times 
some of the public doesn't see, and the prosecutor sometimes gets to see that area, and that discretion should be there in those tiny amount of cases. But on the macro level, outside of just Brazos County, are these the cases that you're, is this is what you're seeing? Well, that, that's what I was going to say. So I've said the exact same things that Jarvis has said. I was a prosecutor for nine years, and I would have said the exact same thing. Because on a case-by-case -case level, you'll tell yourself, this one's the worst of the worst. But the reality is that the more you deal with this, as I do on a statewide level, the more you realize that you and your county thinks this is the worst of the worst. He is not the worst of the worst. I've seen 10 times worse in a case where the state never sought the death penalty at all. And so on a macro level, it's just not true that we're actually, that the prosecutors are actually seeking death on the worst of the worst. I, I think they are bad people, absolutely bad people, but on a macro level or on a statewide level, I don't buy or haven't seen evidence to say that those are truly the worst of the worst. And then the second thing I'll say about that is that 72% of the people on death row are not white. They're all, they're minorities. And so there, there does seem to be a correlation between who that individual DA that decides to seek death on, why is it that they seek death much more likely, it seems, against the minority person than the non-minority person. And so if 72% of the people on death row are not white, you do have to at least question whether race is being used as an improper uh, motive subconsciously I would never accuse a prosecutor of consciously seeking death against a minority but I think that there are things working at the subconscious level that may cause people to believe that a non-minority is more of a risk than a minority so I, I think there's just a and I'll say one more thing if you'll indulge Please. me the third thing is judge. well <laughs> no the third thing is about the worst of the worst is that I also think that that gets twisted with evidence of guilt. So there's a case, uh, a man, I think his name is Alfred Brown, who was convicted of shooting a police officer who was responding to a robbery in Houston. And if you ask me as a, a wife, my husband's a retired lieutenant, do I think somebody who kills an a, a police officer responding in the line of duty, do I think they should get the death penalty? My answer is yes, I, as a, a gut feeling is there should be justice, that's a horrible thing, they need to pay. Come to find out though that the state had bought and purchased the testimony of the co-defendant, cut him a sweetheart deal to testify against Brown. Come to find out that the investigating officer had an exculpatory evidence that Brown hadn't done the shooting, that the cop had left in his garage, secreted away for I think a decade and come to find out then that, that habeas relief is, he was on death row, mind you, for 10, 12 years. Habeas get, relief gets uh, granted 10 years later, and then the state dismisses the charges because they can't prove it. But he would have been executed for what everyone agrees is a horrific crime. I think everybody in this room would say, worst of the worst, justice, but when it comes down to questioning the integrity of the evidence, you have to ask yourself, am I so convinced about the quality of this evidence that we are going to act on it and cause the death of this other individual? And that is what's caused me 
great concern in my five years at the Court of Criminal Appeals. I just question the integrity of the evidence that has been used to put these people on death row. So yes, worst of the worst is a great argument, but the next question is, what is the quality of your evidence that proves the case? And are we so convinced in that quality that we're going to execute this person? And that is what has really shaken me up, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it, is just that we're executing people who had not that good evidence that was produced, not good lawyers, not good appeals, and not good habeas litigation, and somehow by the miracle of people getting involved like the Texas Defender Service and the UT Capital Mer uh, Punishment Clinic and civil firms, these things are, are coming to light, but I wonder about how many cases have not come to light, that they were executed because these folks just didn't get involved. Well, I mean, down at the reason. end there, what, what do we do to help those cases come to light? I mean, what, what can be changed on a sort of, uh, again, macro level to think about it that way? Well, at, at a macro level, I mean, institutionally, we need to have the kind of funding that makes sure that cases continue to get investigating after a conviction at the state habeas level, at the federal habeas level. We have to have a real clemency process, which we haven't had in Texas for decades. It used to be that in Texas, you know, a very substantial proportion of those sentenced to death would get a commutation to a life sentence after a careful review by the governor's office and the Board of Pardons Paroles. I think we've had two commutations in the last 40 years and over 500 executions in Texas. Um, so that, pro that process has disappeared. Um, I would take another angle sort of following up on what the judge has said about the worst of the worst. I mean, the worst of the worst is a great idea, but there's no reason to think that the folks who are identified and tried capitally and sentenced to death are the worst of the worst. We don't have criteria which tell us who's the worst of the worst. And if you just look at the cases, the recent cases, not the bad old cases where we have real reason to believe that their, their mistakes have been made, but the recent cases, the folks who've been sentenced to death in the last couple of years, serious mental illness. You know, they had a competency trial of one of the people who was sentenced to death after he was sentenced to death because it was so obvious that there were some mental health issues in the case. I mean, that's the kind of thing it's irresponsible to go ahead and seek a death sentence in one of those cases. You're guaranteed to have years and years of litigation, and if the state wins, they're going to execute somebody who's mentally compromised. It's just kind of bizarre that, that the state would want to undertake um, that, that obligation. Yeah, it, it, seems to, it seems that the proponents of the death penalty are <clears throat> from just listening up here have, are moving away from the deterrent aspect because the evidence shows it doesn't deter, so they, now they're going to something, maybe a, a moral issue is just the right thing to do. Uh, and I don't know that, you know, that's the best punishment, the death penalty. Uh, is, it, is that a real punishment to the person who, it may be, it, it may help the family, they may feel better about it, but if you're trying to punish the individual who committed that heinous act, his punishment ends if you have a quick death penalty. His, he, he's not punished anymore. He's punished if you lock him in a cell for the rest of his life but in solitary. You can, there are ways to punish, but that, that's not punishment. I mean, it's, it, it ends his, you know, it's over with. He doesn't, he, he doesn't suffer anything. If, if, so if you're trying to make him suffer or make him punish, he only does it for the time between his sentence and the actual act of, uh, uh, so th that's even a weaker argument than the deterrent. 
argument. With deterrent argument, I think it's been shown that it doesn't deter. And now suddenly saying, okay, it doesn't deter, but is it the right thing to do? He took a life, we should take a life. I don't know that that's, you know, where our society is going. You know, we're one of the few societies that even have the death penalty in our criminal justice system. So I'm thinking that there are better ways to handle the worst of the worst uh, and a lot less costly to the state with these built-in appeals. That right. We well, but there's a tension over the fact that you're still going to have a lot of members of the community who want it, and, and it would be really up to Jarvis to sort of negotiate that as an elected DA. So. I would say that our duty as the elected DA is to the people in our community. And while those cases go up on writs and on briefs to, um, to the appellate courts, we see these people in person. The jury see these people in person. Like I said at the beginning, the quality of evidence, I think, is a goal for both the defense and the prosecution. I don't know of any prosecutors that, that I know or have dealt with that want to send innocent people away. We're all interested in that, and we all can get in board on making sure that the quality of evidence is sufficient for a conviction. Um, however, I still think that is the duty of the prosecutor in his county where he represents those people, and he sees the crime that happens in that county, he or she sees the crime that happens in that county, has a duty to look at all of the punishments. And it's, this seems to be mutating from an argument of, is the death penalty working to, we should just take the death penalty off the table. And I think that it should still be there, reserved for those cases. The argument that it's not the worst of the worst, I would beg to differ to the people in that county where you are representing those people. And uh, the 12 people that are on that jury, uh, they are looking at the case and they're answering the question, is this person guilty beyond a reasonable doubt? And is this person a future danger? Um, and is there any mitigation? And the, the defense attorneys are allowed to put in pretty much anything. It doesn't even have to have a nexus to the crime um, to make that argument that is there anything that is there to spare the life of this individual? And I think the jury has the power and they're, um, they're, they're smart people and they try to get it right. Like I said, the integrity of the evidence is, is absolute and paramount. We would work with you, work with defense counsel in trying to make that, um, make that the case because no one wants that. But there are still people who like to kill and who like to hurt people. And I think that that's why the public sentiment is high, that it is an option that is there. And to take that off the table, I think, is, in my opinion, unwise. I'm just going to say, I was a prosecutor for nine years at the Harris County DA's office. And if you had asked me then, or even in the decade after, do I believe that prosecutors would lie or hide evidence or be un unethical to get a conviction, I would have sworn on a stack of Bibles it would never happen. I just wouldn't do it, and none of my friends would do it. And yet, in the Anthony Graves case, that prosecutor, I think, was disbarred because he hid evidence in that case. In the Michael Morton case, that prosecutor, who ended up being a judge, was put in jail because he hid evidence in that case. In the Alfred Brown case that I told you about, that prosecutor who was a friend of mine and I would have told you no way, no how would he ever do anything wrong, that prosecutor apparently uh, coerced or pressured a witness into um, making a different statement than what she had told the police. So I, 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 and so I understand that a prosecutor says, and I, I don't believe Jarvis would ever do it. And my first assistant sat on one of those disciplinary hearing cases okay. where they were disbarred. Right, so but my point we is- We are interested in that justice. I so. know you are, but my point is that you are one of 254 counties. Mm -hmm. And my point is that these are single prosecutors who are making the decision. 
One of the things I think would be great if we're going to keep the death penalty is to have a statewide advisory kind of board or commission or something that would oversee these cases in order to make sure that justice is the same in Harris County as in Waller County as in another county because the problem is that these case-by-case -case prosecutors everything is left to their entire discretion with there being no kind of overseeing about uniformity in the state and I think that's a, a problem. But you're always going to have a tension between uh, uniformity across the state versus responding to the wishes of people in a given county. Uh, well, but it's not, a, I mean, this is a justice system. It is not taking a poll and saying who thinks all the drug dealers ought to be executed. The Supreme Court would not allow that. It's not constitutional. You can't have the death penalty for a crime that is not based in murder. So I'm troubled by the idea that um, this is accomplished by a show of hands. I'm also troubled, there are other things that trouble me, and I want to just say, you know, we're not an abolitionist outfit at TDS. We're a law reform organization. One of the things that troubles us is that in a death penalty case, people who are not able to give the death penalty in a proper case cannot sit in a death penalty case. And you may say, okay, well, so they have to agree with the range of punishment. The problem is, as the National Jury Project has discovered, is that death penalty juries, because we choose people who can only give the death penalty in a proper case, don't find the guilt-innocence part of the trial to be relevant. They think they're there to sentence Bubba to death. And so that they are uniquely deaf to merits phase issues. Which does you mean to whether they're guilty or innocent? Exactly. So this is how. So when people say to me, "How is it that innocent people end up on death row?" Yes, some of it is prosecutors um, who hide evidence, but some of it is also jurors who cannot properly assess the evidence because they are focused because they've been asked over and over again, "Are you sure you can give the death penalty?" They're focused on punishment. And now, this the, is troubling. It's the worst that that juror's ever seen, but by comparison to what we've seen, it's actually not the worst of the worst. It's, it's just a, a murder like a lot of other murders, but there's nothing particularly egregious about it. And, would, and that's the oh, problem with leaving this to juror, juror, individual jurors. I would say that that then throws the jury system on its head. Mm. The whole point, every law, the, the rules of evidence, and the code of criminal procedure applies to all cases. So in any case, whether it be a shoplifting case, all the way to a death penalty case, you have to be able to be a juror, be able to consider the full range of punishment. And so to have somebody on there who can't consider the full range of punishment on any case makes a mockery of the justice system, and it's a big waste, in, not a big waste of time, let me not say that because that sounds really mean. Um, it, 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 you can't just have that one rule in a death penalty case and not in other cases. You have to be able to consider the full range of punishment. And I would also say, uh, respectfully uh, to Judge Alcala, that it is the jurors. They represent, they're looking at the facts. It is not, um, it's not on a piece of paper. It is real life. They see the people. They see the evidence. And great, we want to make sure that prosecutors aren't hiding evidence. I want to make sure I state that over and over again. But they are responding to those questions. Is he guilty beyond a reasonable doubt? Does this person represent a future danger? And is there any mitigation? And they have to answer all of those questions 
before that is imposed. So I would think that changing that standard to where you could sit on a case and not believe in the punishment, that's not fair to the state. It's not fair to the defense. It would be the equivalent of saying, yeah, I don't believe that any people on, uh, on, should ever get life in prison. And that person being allowed to sit, they should always get death. Well, that wouldn't be could, fair to the defense attorneys. We could have bifurcated attorneys. juries, but every time I put in a motion right. for a bifurcated jury, which is to have one jury for, for guilt innocence, you know, somebody who could consider who's, you know, so we're not doing the death penalty litmus test, and have a different jury for sentencing, I've never had a prosecutor join in with that motion. Well, I've never seen that point. About <laughs> being able to consider the full range of punishment, I mean, and death qualification. You know, prosecutors have abused that for years. I mean, it used to be that prosecutors would ask minority jurors uh, about the full range of punishment in cases that were very aggravated cases to get them to say that they would insist on a high level of punishment when the law would allow someone to get as little as five years or even probation for murder back in the old days as a way of just excluding African Americans from jury service. So the, this death qualification um, has been abused, really, not just to have jurors who are committed to the death penalty, but also just to skew juries. I mean, that, that process has been used in a very improper way, and the U.S. Supreme Court found in a Dallas case that uh, it was impermissible. Joe, could that be, could that be sort of addressed on a, on a statewide level? The, certainly the bifurcated jury uh, issue could be uh, in capital cases, and it does make a lot of sense because if you emphasize a person's belief in the death penalty or can they give a death penalty, if that's such a strong point for them to sit on the jury, mm -hmm. then you have a person that probably is an advocate for that, uh, for that death penalty. So, uh, and the fact that it's a choice of the community, I, I don't really un understand that as playing a part in the, in the prosecutor's job because the community, and, I'm, and I include myself, you, you hear John Smith got arrested for the murder of Mary. All you say, you heard John Smith killed Mary? I mean, they made their mind up. The guy was arrested, he's guilty, and that's it. And so, okay, so why would you give so much credence to whether they want the death penalty or not? I think, I think it's up to a representative form of government that we don't, we don't take polls in all of these areas. We have people that, that, are, that are elected to represent and then we, then we come up with laws. And I think that when we see abuses or a trend like we see in the, jury, in the capital juries that uh, then maybe we can do something about it with a bifurcated system. I know there'll be arguments, well, it's costly, it'll take more time, but you know, what, is a, what is the innocent life worth? Uh, 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 as far as that, that's concerned. What are we paying under the current system in the very few that we have? If we're going to continue to do and have the death penalty, we need to make sure that uh, the system works properly. I was going to say, just real quickly, I would agree with you, Mr. Stocker, that if prosecutors are using race as a factor in any sort of way in juries, those prosecutors need to be disbarred. And that was the case in Dallas, and that was rectified. They didn't throw out the death penalty, but they dealt with that issue and made sure that there are protections there that now you can look at prosecutors' notes to determine, are you making strikes based on, the, based on race or gender? Um, you mean kicking people off the jury? Kicking people race. off juries in, in, in that way, shape, or form. And I, I wanted to go back just real quickly to Judge Alcliffe's point that that is a, a huge concern is that we want to make sure that we are going back and not just putting black or brown people on for death penalty cases. That's true everywhere. I went back and looked at the last 20 
in my jurisdiction. And so looking back and saying, okay, what was the race of the defendant? What was the race of the people who many capital cases that were non-death cases, that we chose to look at that? And in our jurisdiction, in Brazos County, there were 50% of our uh, defendants that we were tried for death were white, 35 were black. And in ones that were many capitals, nine, I believe, many, many capitals, where there is a capital murder, but it is non-death. The state chooses okay. not to seek the death penalty. The majority of people in those places were black males, and I think there were five that were white, uh, white males at the time. I say that to say that not every place is like the bigger jurisdictions. Um, there are people who are looking at this thing and looking at it um, very carefully to make sure that, that race is not creeping in, and that's why you see places are becoming more diverse as prosecutor offices, and you have more diverse people. Those Hopefully those things are being rooted out with the help of prosecution and defense. I would last just say this, this last thing is that you do see a little bit of arbit arbitrary, is not the right word, but in bigger cities you see more cases with death penalties um, as opposed to small counties. But as in your article and in the, the people that I talk to, those people in small counties are strapped by budgets and they know that, they, that cases deserve it, but they can't do it. And so it's not a fact of making it uniform in Austin. If you gave them the finances, my guess was that you would see more prosecutors going forward and with the death penalty as opposed to not. Not because of polling, but just because looking at the particular facts of the case. That's just my opinion. And, and I think you should be aware that the single biggest driver of who gets noticed for death in Texas, as everywhere else, according to the various studies, is actually not race of defendant. It's race of victim. And when you look at, when you examine and drill down into the statistics about who's been executed in Texas, they've been executed overwhelmingly because they killed white victims. Um, and you said they executed white, because they killed white they, victims? They, they, they were executed and they killed white victims. Okay. It was not till 2004 that we executed anyone in the state of Texas whose victims were not, were wholly not white. And, and so, you know, this is a question then about um, whose lives the justice system values. And, and that is a, a question that we don't grapple with really well. But I would say we're maybe, it's maybe being grappled with more now than it was five or 10 years ago. Would you, would you say that? Um, you know, I would say that. I think you still want to look at uh, you know, where counties are putting their money to seek the death penalty. I, th I think it's fascinating that last year, for example, all the death sentences were handled down, handed down in single murder cases, and there were, and the majority of life sentences last year were handed down in multiple murder cases. So there is a proportionality problem there, definitely. Um, and, and just, I now want to segue off of that and just say, you know, Your Honor, one thing your court doesn't do and it could do is proportionality review of sentences. And, and I don't know if you can talk about why that doesn't happen. And if we could sketch out sort of what that means. Um, well, you know, I think it's just not part of the sufficiency of the evidence test under Jackson. Um, and honestly, I haven't seen the argument raised often. Um, you know, you just wrote a, 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 the Texas Defender Service just wrote a paper that if you're interested in this subject is, is worth reading, maybe you should plug it yourself, but it talks about the quality of the direct appeal lawyers. Maybe you should talk about that. It's called Lethally De Deficient. It, it surveys 
six years of death, direct death penalty appeals. So these are the appeals based on what happened um, in court and in the pretrial motions hearing, so on the record um, in the case. And these appeals go directly after the conviction and death sentence to the Court of Criminal Appeals. And so we surveyed 84 appeals that were decided between uh, January 1, 2009 and December 31, 2015. And 82 of those cases went to final decision and every conviction was affirmed. Every, all 82 of them was, were confirmed. Only three death sentences were overturned. Um, that is, Texas in that affirmance uh, rate is, is higher for its death sentences than any other death penalty jurisdiction. Um, state jurisdiction in the country. And when we looked at what lawyers did, we found lots of deficiencies. And Jordan actually has spoken to this, so why don't you pick it up and talk about <laughs> what we saw? Well, what's astonishing in these cases is, unlike in state post-conviction or federal habeas, um, the lawyers here are appointed in sort of a, an ad hoc way. In a lot of cases, I think it's close to a third of the cases, the lawyers didn't even present their appeals. I mean, they didn't make oral argument. They didn't show up in court to argue on behalf of their client. Um, if I had a student do that in moot court, they'd get a D. And this is a death penalty case. And they're not showing up at the one opportunity they have before the Court of Criminal Appeals to argue about error in the case. We had a, there are a lot of these cases where the state files a brief and the lawyers don't file a response. Again, it's just sort of basic lawyering that you'd expect somebody who's representing someone on uh, who's condemned to death, that they would just file a reply brief in a case. Um, so the lawyering is just tremendously deficient. And there's an easy fix to create a statewide office that would represent these folks on direct appeal. You wouldn't need many lawyers. Four or five lawyers would be sufficient given the very few death sentences we have these days. But it, what's striking is this has been a problem for years. I used to bring students to the Court of Criminal Appeals in order to watch oral arguments in capital cases, and I stopped doing it because in too many cases, the lawyer didn't show up. And in some cases back then, they, and I don't know if this is still true, they let the prosecutor argue alone, uh, without opposition, saying, you know, there's no problem in this case. The DA would get up and say, you know, this was as clean a case as you can ha imagine, while the lawyer is out in some small county somewhere, you know, working on another trial and not coming to a direct appeal. Um, so this has been a problem that's been in, in existence for 40, 50 years. The modern death penalty, it's, it's been there. Everybody knows about it. The judges on the Court of Criminal Appeals knows, know about it. The trial judges know about it. Um, and yet, the system persists. Um, I think we're going to move to audience questions unless anyone has a well, you know, jump on. Uh, this may be, uh, there's something I wanted to say. One of the, when we were preparing, yeah. you had asked about no cost fixes to the death penalty. And so I wanted to mention, I'll, I'll be quick, uh, I think that there are legislative fixes that wouldn't cost a dime. So let's, I'm not one to say that we should have the death penalty or that we shouldn't have the death penalty. That is a legislative decision. And I have not said that I think it's unconstitutional in Texas. I've said I have grave concerns, which is true, but I have not said that it is unconstitutional. I have not written on that yet. But there are no cost possible fixes. One is 
the question that the juries get asked in punishment is whether the defendant is a continuing danger to society. And the problem is that my court has def defined society as you all, out the outside world. But the defendant is going to get sentenced to life without parole. He's never going to live with you all ever again, no matter what. He's going to be in prison. I think the legislator, and I wrote about this recently, the legislature could define society to just prison society because that's the only society that the defendant's ever going to live in. So that way when the jury is deciding whether to give death, they're really answering a factual question as to whether he's going to be a future danger in prison, which is the only place he's ever going to live. I also think the legislature should consider, I've written about this too, about uh, disallowing the execution of severely mentally ill people Defining that term is going to be difficult, but that's what legislators do. I think that most people agree that we shouldn't be executing severely mentally ill people, but thus far the courts have not stepped in to prohibit that. Um, I also think the legislature should disallow inmate testimony. In the Alfred Brown case, they cut a deal with the co-defendant, and the co-defendant testified against Brown. I think when you buy and purchase conspirator testimony that you really lack the integrity that you need in a death penalty case. So I would say legislators should say no deals with crooks in a death penalty case. I think that on um, the, the Supreme Court has said that you cannot execute intellectually disabled people. I think that the legislature needs to step in and define who is intellectually disabled. So far, the legislators haven't done that. And so the, my courts had a test that's now before the US Supreme Court on the grounds that people are saying it's unconstitutional. But frankly, the legislators blames, deserve some blame for that because they should have defined that term uh, many, many years ago. I also think they ought to make the burden of proof on the state to show that the defendant is not intellectually disabled once that the def defendant raises the issue. Again, because uh, we want the integrity of the process to be there. I also think that um, this is something I think is a big deal, but 99% of people won't understand it, so I'm going to mention it. And that is that I think that we ought to have a process to allow for post-conviction reformations of sentences. In other words, I prosecuted a case in the 1990s, and he's been on death row now for something like 20 years. But we know now things that we didn't know back then. Maybe not enough to undo the conviction and, and sentence, but maybe enough to say that we should reform that, that sentence from death to life. And there ought to be some commission, or you said the, um, uh, the parole board. There ought to be some mechanism to be able to reform death sentences that we no longer have confidence in to life through some process other than writs of habeas corpus. And I wanted to get that out because people get focused on, oh, this is going to cost money to do all of these things. These things don't cost a dime. Mm -hmm. These are mm -hmm. just legislative changes that I really think need to be considered. Even if they don't implement them, they ought to be talking about them. Um, with that, let's move to uh, audience questions. Um, and give our friend here a chance to get to you before you start speaking. Let's um, go over here.
Hamarowe. My name is Andy Harrington. I'm at the LBJ School, and I'm also Comanche Indian. Um, my question is that it seems that the system, there's a lot of myths around the death penalty. There's a myth that the person, um, the alleged perpetrator is the perpetrator, and that the trial is competent and fair and not holding institutionalized racism. And I've, for my community, that mistrust is already there. Um, we, that many people in my family have just made the assumptions that it's not fair. And um, Your Honor, the comments you were saying about your past experiences and how you've sort of now become aware of these things um, reminded me of Michelle Alexander's book in The New Jim Crow where she really echoed that kind of awakening. And so my question to the panel is how do we promote um, the debunking of death penalty myths where we really encourage the public, legislators, prosecutors, people in the entire system and lawyers to recognize where there are flaws where there are incompetencies, and to really rectify the situation and be honest with the policy itself. You spoke too much. <laughs> I would just say real quickly, I would say go watch a death penalty case. I would actually go see it. And I think, I mean, partly, and I don't, I disagree a little bit with the premise about what the myths are, because I think there are myths on both sides about what actually happens in death penalty cases these days. But I think the best way to do that is to take some time and go watch one. Go watch and observe the prosecutors. Go watch and observe the defense attorneys. Go watch and observe the judge. And then you can come to your own conclusions about how these cases work in your communities. Is that a vote for putting cameras in the courtroom? We had cameras in our courtroom, oh. so in our last one. You know, Walter Long, who's a lawyer here in Austin, has just written an essay for the United Nations um, talking about the death penalty as a trauma-infused system. So it grows out of a traumatic effect where people are traumatized by it, usually committed by someone who also is suffering from some degree of trauma, um, and how the system itself is dedicated to replicating that trauma and creating victims and stigmatizing people. Since reading this essay, um, it strikes me that um, we also need to be informed about our understanding of ourselves as human beings and, and how trauma leads us to act in ways in our criminal justice system that is injurious at large to the body politic. So um, I would say if you want to go see a death penalty trial, definitely, but also you should make an effort to meet the people who have been wrongfully convicted who have been on death row, you should talk to the participants in all sides because there is a great deal of trauma that is being inflicted on everyone, judges, jurors, defense lawyers, prosecutors, the families of the victims, but also the families of the defendants. And, and we need to understand all of that trauma and really ask ourselves, as we go forward in the system, what are we accomplishing? And if it's just making the whole world blind, that doesn't seem like it's valuable. Just my point of view. In the back here. Yeah, my, my name is David Wiley, and um, I think the young ladies made a point earlier. There's an issue of how the general public thinks the death penalty works and then how it actually works. You know, I think it's, oh, somebody's charged with a crime, they get competent counsel, there's a fair uh, sharing of facts, found guilty, couple of appeals, off you go. That's not how it works. So with, with the politics around this, what's the likelihood that Texas will ever admit that it may have executed somebody who's an innocent, who's innocent of the crime? Because I think it's almost a mathematical certainty that this has happened, given all the, uh, all the uh, conviction reversals by the Innocence Project and other groups, that we have actually executed somebody 
uh, that's innocent. And if that were to ever happen, that would just undercut the entire death penalty argument. So is this so wrapped up in politics we can't even be honest about the likelihood that we probably uh, have executed uh, innocent people? Oh, God, I was thinking maybe Jordan. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I don't think, I don't know that there will ever be a definitive statement that we have done that, but it's clear, to me, it's clear we have. We are due to the number of people recently who have been exonerated or taken off with, with just DNA evidence alone, you know, statistically, it, it, it's pretty clear that, you know, it didn't just start today. So all these past 50 years or whatever, uh, with the system being, everything else being the same, how can this be the only the beginning of t when innocent people were on death row? I mean, so, I mean, it's it, clear to anyone, I think, that going back is the same as going forward when everything else is the same, and we find all these innocent people, a hundred and so 108 or 80 years recently that have been taken off a of death row based on new ev on evidence, uh, 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 DNA, some, some of it was DNA, half of it maybe. Um, so I'm sure we, it's, who can make the argument that we haven't, a real, a, a real argument that we've never executed? Well, huh? I, I a what? Yeah, I, I think well. it, it really, it's, it's interesting to me to think about how Texas would react to a definitive showing of actual innocence. I, I think there have been definitive showings of actual innocence. There's a terrific book by a guy named Jim Weedman who wrote The Other Carlos, um, in which he gives a very detailed account of the trial, conviction, and execution uh, of a Texas death row inmate. And he makes a very persuasive case um, that uh, Carlos de Luna was innocent, and the other Carlos who committed the crime has been identified, and he, it's one of these great books where you can go online and click every single piece of evidence that he offers. You can then pull up online and, um, and observe for yourself. Um, a lot of people think that the evidence uh, surrounding uh, Cameron Willingham is inadequate to support that death sentence. Um, it would, be, it would be hubris to think that we have a system as large as it is um, and have had conducted as many executions as we have um, and not executed innocent people. I think that supporters of the death penalty, you know, I think by and large think you know, there will be errors. I mean, anytime you have a criminal justice system, you have to have errors. And um, uh, I think it's a, a good argument for why we should be particularly worries, worried about having a death penalty. But I, I don't think you can possibly defend the death penalty by saying we're going to have a death penalty and we're not going to have error. Because I think all of our experience teaches us that that's not possible. I was just going to say, I have a, a friend who's a district court judge, loveliest lady you've ever met, but at dinner time casually said, oh, yeah, um, that's just part of the system. You know, somebody's going to be innocent and executed, but that's the system, it's fallible, and that's, that's the best we can do. And I was a little stunned, but I thought, well, she's, she's accepted that there will be innocent people executed, and that's just the cost of the system that we have. The only other thing I was gonna say, just so y'all know, because you may not be uh, as familiar with the death penalty, there are 240-something, do you know the exact number? 244. 244 people right now on death row, 
And on average, there's an execution scheduled about one a month. And you'll see them in the paper. The Marshall Project's a great website. I think you all have a thing that's called the next to die. Yeah. The next to die. So if you're not, not familiar, why don't you plug the Marshall? Sure. Yeah. There's a, there's a tool at the Marshall Project, not just for Texas, but for every state that currently has a death penalty. That's uh, the, it's called, the project is called The Next to Die, and you go to this website and you can click on any of the states and it'll tell you that the next execution in any given state is, um, is you know, this many days or weeks or months away, and it will also tell you just sort of a sketch about the case and link you to sort of more information. Uh, again, I think actually a, a tricky thing for journalists as they uh, try to convey these things to the public is that we also can never know everything about a case, and so we are as we present the case to the public, as an execution uh, is impending, we're reading briefs, we're talking to defense attorneys, we're talking to prosecutors, um, and to the extent the judges will talk to us, we're talking to them, and we're trying to, we're, we're basically in the position of trying to frame something in the most honest and fair way, and I am sort of always open to suggestions on how we can do that better, because that goes to this question of kind of public confidence and the idea that there are these myths. I was also going to say Jolie McCullough's here, and she's the reporter for the Texas Tribune that mm -hmm. does a lot of writing on the upcoming executions as they're coming and, and as they're done. And she's another great resource if, if you're interested in the topic. So there's a lot of reporters who have a lot of interest in it. And whether you're for it or against it, educate yourself and then educate others is all I can say. Like I said, I'm not trying to advocate for or against anything. I decide the cases case by case. In the last year, I've ruled in favor of the state a number of times, and I've ruled against the state a number of times. So I decide the cases based on what's in front of me at the time. And I would just ask you to do your own intellectual assessment of how you think things are going, and then be vocal about it and tell whoever will listen to you. Over here in the purple. Hi, uh, my name is Clayton Hope with the Lone Star College Center for Civic Engagement. Um, my question is, how does the state specifically assess someone's mental capabilities, and how could we improve that process to prevent them from being wrongfully executed? How long do we have? <laughs> every 90 days on death row, there's a unit called the psychotherapy unit that goes around to every inmate and talks to the inmate and asks them a list of questions. And they're questions like, are you seeing things that aren't there? Are you hearing voices? Um, and inmates who are mentally ill know that, that that mental illness carries the same stigma in prison that it carries outside. And these people in the psychotherapy unit spend less than 10 seconds by each cell, and they just check off boxes. And if people don't get off of their bunks, don't come over to talk to them, or if they just say, no, 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 I'm fine, then um, they, that's, that's all that happens. Um, there is no treatment on death row. I represent Scott Lewis Panetti, who's, who represented himself at trial wearing a cowboy outfit, despite years of diagnosis as a par paranoid schizophrenic. In fact, he was receiving Social Security benefits because he was found to be disabled as a result of his paranoid schizophrenia. So he, this wasn't something he made up uh, for trial. And on death row, people say to me all the time, has, has he been medicated? And the answer is no. And in, and, and in fact, when he went to death row, he had a horrible reaction to the major psychotic, anti-psychotic drugs that are used. Um, 
so he's continued to be delusional on the row. There's, there's really not treatment there. Um, and, and there is a case of, of a death row inmate who, while awaiting trial, was so delusional he plucked out one eye. On death row, he plucked out the other eye and swallowed it. Um, so it's, this doesn't happen. And, uh, and in this, there's a greater problem in, that in Texas, our largest mental hospital is the Harris County Jail. Um, oh, and but by the way, Judge, there is a definition of serious mental illness in the insurance code. I did want to let you know that. I found oh, that the other right. day. <laughs> so. Well, tell the legislator. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. You can send him the side. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think we have time for one more question uh, before we all go to lunch. Um, I don't know. Right in the middle here. And please feel free to come up and talk to us afterwards. I think I speak for everyone when I say we're, yeah. we're My name is Sydney Petty. I'm from Howard Payne University, and I have a question for Judge Alcala. Um, you had mentioned earlier that it would be beneficial to create a statewide advisory board to make sure there's uniformity in the death penalty. Who would you suggest be put on that board to ensure that there's no bias? Me? <laughs> for one, him? <laughs> Um, you know, that'd be the hardest part of it because almost by definition it would become a political entity and if you allow the, gov the governor to appoint. And so that's really, truly the, the hardest part. I would say maybe if, the, if you had some neutral and, you know, we're hard pressed to find neutral these days, but there's like the judicial, um, the, there's a judicial board made up of judges. Maybe they could select prosecutors, defense lawyers, DAs. It would have to be a, a combination and just some regular citizens. But I, I think that it'd be hard to do. But I, when I think of an aspirational goal, to me, that's something that I think would be helpful if we're going to have the death penalty in the future. Um, on that note, it is uh, time for lunch. I have been told to tell you that uh, <laughs> there are food truck vendors out on the main mall near the UT Tower. And programming will uh, come back at 1.45 in this room. Um, thank you all to our panelists. Thank you, guys. Bye.